Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris from Nice Guy Productions, overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. There are many ways into the film industry, and many successful cinema artists have found their way into the business through circuitous routes. Assistants to producers and production executives have found themselves calling the shots on major motion pictures after toiling in the ungrateful trenches of subservience. Journalists and novelists find their storytelling acumen can be put to good use in the screenwriting format and find success there that far outreaches their previous audiences. Actors often become writers and directors finding a more extensive way to express their creative drive. And it's certainly not uncommon for editors to ease into the director's chair and others come by their talents and opportunities genetically. I began as a music journalist who moved into film, then an interviewer in print and on television, worked in specialized publicity for Avco Embassy and Universal and a PR company. I learned how to put pieces of behind the scenes footage into narrative shape as the director of making of documentaries for movies like The Fog, The Howling, Gremlins and The Goonies. I was hired to write a screenplay for Avco Embassy when I was doing publicity there. And though my script never got made, it got me an agent who got my material to the good folks at Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment, and that opened the door to a writing, producing, and directing career that continues to this day. Well, the agent who got that door open for me became a very successful screenwriter and producer himself. I don't really know of any other agents who became screenwriters, successful screenwriters, other than Rick Jaffa. When he sold the spec script for a million dollars, it launched an enviable writing career in Hollywood. Rick's wife, Amanda Silver, came right out of the shoot with a hit screenplay even before when she wrote The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. They've been creative and domestic partners ever since, over 30 years, and their successes continue to soar. We'll talk to one of the brightest and best creative screenwriting teams in Hollywood right after this. Available now from Dread, The Maid. Joy is the new maid of a royal house whose previous maid disappeared under mysterious circumstances and is now haunting and terrorizing the family. 
Joy works to uncover the reasons behind the former maid's disappearance. The Maid, available on demand everywhere and on Blu-ray August 17th. Also coming soon to dread, Howling Village. From the visionary director of The Grudge and The Grudge 2 comes Howling Village, where, after her brother goes missing, a young psychologist visits an infamous haunted and cursed location known as Howling Village, what else, to investigate his disappearance and uncover her family's dark history. Howling Village will be available on demand everywhere on August 17th and on Blu-ray September 14th. My very first question is to have you remember your first date together, because I was there. You were there. In fact, you might be right there. You're very close to there right now. <laughs> Same address. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was a first date at your house. Uh, you know, Garris Hall. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, the way I remember it was that you and 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 Tom McLaughlin and uh, David Kirshner, it was around Christmas time. And you guys had, you know, gotten together and and bought me a thank you gift as your agent of a stereo system, yeah. and uh, and I asked Amanda to, to come along with me. I was I was the Gary Lucchese's assistant at TriStar Pictures, mm. and um, I was super young and nervous <laughs> around all these professional people and um and we were you picked me up rick picked me up we, we drove up to it was pre-arranged by the way i didn't like pick you up on wilshire boulevard so. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and right. we drove to mix house we did yeah we barely we didn't really know each other we we actually we, we met on amanda's first night in los angeles at a party and uh the year before the year before and we were both in other relationships and uh um we just kind of met briefly and then we saw each other about a, almost a year exactly a year later at the on the paramount lot uh, there was a screening of children of a lesser god and we walked out of that old theater and then we saw each other across you know a crowded alley <laughs> <laughs> and um and anyway so you know it's a long story it's it's full of ups and downs and you know uh, as Big Lebowski would say, what have you. But um, at any rate, that ended up, you know, uh, with me bringing her to your house for the little celebration we had. And well, we you, changed, you changed a couple of lives, Rick. You changed my life in that you opened that door to Amblin, got them the material that got them to hire me as a screenwriter and later as a director. Um, and you certainly helped change Amanda's life. She was already well-established creatively, had done Hand That Rocked the Cradle, although you were an executive producer on that. So, but the combination of your talents, I had no idea you intended to be a screenwriter when you were my agent. You were a William Morris agent and you never let it slip that that was going on. Well, I don't, I don't know that I, I think, I don't know how much of it was really going on. You know, I'd, I'd done a lot of writing in college and uh, at one point thought I wanted to be a writer, but you know, I, I got into the mailroom because I needed a job. I was, I was broke. And a friend of mine kind of guided me toward trying mailroom, uh, getting into one of the mailrooms. So I ended up in the mailroom at William Morris. And once I was there, I really kind of 
said, well, since I'm here, let's go for it, you know? And uh, so I, I just, I worked really hard. I read everything I could get my hands on and I became Stan Kamen's assistant. And Stan at that time was a very famous, powerful guy, uh, agent, represented a lot of movie stars and directors and so forth. So I kind of, I really just kind of went with it. And I have to say, I, 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 I don't know that I, I loved being an agent. I don't know how good I was. I, <laughs> well, you were great for me. That's well, I was crazy about you is the deal. There was a handful <laughs> that I really believed in and I enjoyed their company and, uh, and, and the like. And so I, you know, I, I enjoyed that, but the phone sheet and, you know, the negotiation of the deals and so forth and dealing with business affairs and, oh God, I just, I just didn't like, you know, I didn't like it. So, but I got to tell you something, after we left your house that night, by the way, can we back up a second? Because sure. we house, we watched. I was hoping you were yeah, going to say Yeah, we that. watched the episode of Amazing Stories that you and Tom wrote together right. that Zemeckis directed, right? Right. Yeah, and it was fantastic. Bob Zemeckis, yeah, they turned it into a one-hour special. Yeah, no, it was it was fantastic. And so it was a, it was a great it was a great night. Uh, but then after we left your house, we drove down to Dupar's. Which uh-huh. right below you, right? It's close to you anyway. Yeah. Well, not anymore, but yes. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's sad. But at any rate, we we went there and we ordered like you know breakfast at whatever time we left your place, and we we stayed up. I don't know. We stayed there a long time talking about movies and writing and and you know what got us to L.A. and and we just we really connected. I mean, that night changed our lives. Uh, because we just like, we realized we were, you know, more than simpatico when it came to movies we liked and the reason we, you know, we're out in LA. Anyway. Um, well, you were a small town Texas boy from Waxahachie. Uh, but Amanda, you came from an entirely different background. Your grandfather, Stanley Buckman, was an Oscar winning screenwriter. He had written, uh, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And here comes Mr. Jordan is the one he got the uh, Academy Award for. And, you know, this tell me about growing up with that kind of history. Well, it's interesting because um, Sidney was legendary in my family, and he had been blacklisted in the 50s. Exactly. Um, so uh, he moved to Europe in my whole childhood. I mean, I, I got to know him pretty well because he spent summers with us. But uh, because he had um, been so smart and because his craft was so well honed and because he was such a moral guy, he, he kind of loomed larger than life. And so when I, and I always knew that I wanted to make movies, but I was kind of scared of the writing part. So I thought I wanted to be a director when I was young. And, mm-hmm. and uh, when I got the job on Gary's desk and I moved to Los Angeles, um, I, I was very uh, inspired, but also a little concerned because there was always the warning because the blacklist, it's like, you know, watch out for this business you know, the movie business. Um, It'll bite you, yeah. Live, yeah. yeah. Right. Definitely. Well, he, his films always had a social conscience. Um, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, like I said, and Mr. Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and also George Stevens' movie, Talk of the Town. They were about more than just the story. And they were about uh, people versus the machine, in a way. But they they had a really high moral center, and did you find that that affected you and your work as well? 
Well, it was a very high bar. It affected me uh, as a person growing up, as I said, because the legend, his legend and, and his moral compass was kind of, um, it, especially even by my father. He wasn't my father's father. He was my father's father-in-law, but um, we just talked about Sydney all the time. So it very much profoundly affected um, the way I was brought up. And, I'm, and, and then when I, when I moved to Los Angeles and when I went to film school and started writing myself, um, I, you know, it's, it, it took me a while, but to try and figure out the art of, of writing a screenplay and also um, saying what you want to say and trying to make a difference, um, it, it takes time to kind of figure that out, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, I mean, it does. We. Uh, I mean, if you looked at our credits, you wouldn't, you may not think it, but you know, we, we really do consider well before we take a project and, um, uh, and we do ask ourselves and, and we have said, we've asked this question in, in the room of some very powerful people. Uh, well, why are we making this movie other than to make money? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, and we're, and, and I gotta tell you this, it, it sometimes separates, you know, <laughs> Uh, quickly, so uh, so you know it might not be totally clear in, in our you know in our films, but it's certainly clear in the choices we've made. Well, but I think I think you can. Um, I mean, to get to what a film is trying to say, it it can be the most obvious thing in the film, or it can be part of a message that's mm-hmm. that's kind of hidden. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of metaphor in fantastic films, in particular. And I mean, the Planet of the Apes movies that you wrote, I mean, I'm rarely a big fan of reboots or remakes or or sequels, even in that regard. Franchises is something I'm normally kind of allergic to. But you rebooted the Planet of the Apes movies. I mean, when when you did um, the the first reboot of the Planet of the Apes, I. I was blown away. It was like, and I called you and told you at the time, it was like I was going to see Jurassic Park for the first time. It felt fresh and new and moving and powerful in a way I never would have imagined. And a lot of that credit has to go to the screenwriters because it could have been something quite other than that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, that was our original idea. I don't know if we've ever talked about how that whole thing came together or not, but no, I'd love to hear. We were, so we were between jobs and, uh, and our, our, we know we've had, uh, you know, our career started off with a bang and we had, had some success and got some movies made. And then, and then we went through a period where we wrote some, I think maybe our three best scripts that did not get made. Yes. I'm familiar with that phenomenon. Love those scripts, uh, but because of that, before you know it, we we got cold, and our agents wouldn't return our calls and stuff, stuff like that. So uh, we needed a job, and um, we're you know we're avid readers, and we uh, you know we we cut out articles and magazines, newspapers, read off the internet, print articles, and keep them. So uh, I took a bunch of articles I had up to uh, Ojai. And checked into a hotel and uh, determined to come up with an idea. And so I was had to, I'd covered the whole floor with uh, these different articles and they were arranged in you know, genre and ideas and different things. So uh, we had read articles about people who raise chimpanzees 
as if they were humans in their home with, you know, clothes and, you know, high chairs and, and the whole deal. And which is bizarre, right? <laughs> but uh, it always ends badly. I mean, it always ends badly. Hmm. Meaning they get out, they attack a neighbor, they do this, they attack their owner, uh, or they're just, you know, it's just said they're not meant to be, you know, uh, domesticated. They're wild animals. So especially once they become teenagers. But anyway, uh, as it worked out, I had a stack of those articles and we had had those articles for maybe three years or so. And then it happened to be next to a stack of articles about genetic engineering and things like that that we're, we've been interested in, in for years. And, uh, and I sat there for a day or two and my eyes kept landing on the articles about the apes and articles about the genetic engineering. And I was like, there's gotta be a movie. And, and a voice in my head literally said, it's planet of the apes. Yeah. God, wait a minute. And so I thought about it uh, and I packed up our, my stuff and I went back, I came back, to the house and Amanda says, okay, so what do you got? And I said, we're going to reinvent Planet of the Apes. <laughs> <laughs> it did not go well, you know what I'm saying? At first blush, but I said, no, it's a character piece. It's about, this is what it's about, you know, born in the lab, you know, uh, they're working on some kind of smart gene or Alzheimer's or something. Anyway, it, Caesar was born that afternoon in this in this office, or maybe it wasn't this office, in another office. But Nearby. it was it was born, and it, it, the thing is, it works because for two reasons. It's a, it was a character piece from its moment of inception. It, it's like the moment it came together was a character piece, and point of view. Yeah, it's like you can tell it from his point of view. From the point of view. From the point of view of an ape, and it's it it. And also this, yeah. this fits into kind of the Sidney Buckman question because maybe it took a minute for us to get the opportunity to begin to write things that, you know, really, really spoke from our heart. Yeah. But Caesar is the ultimate outsider. Mm. Um, and he, he's a character who fights for rights. He's, it's an animal rights movie. Yeah. He fights for the rights of his people or his, uh, his apes. Yeah. And, um, and that was that became a very passionate kind of yeah he was a more he was a moral century yeah he was like always like the better part of who we are and uh but we fought i mean we fought fox man it was it was five it was a pretty tough five years to get the thing made and uh wow yeah but um and well, they, they were happy afterwards i'm sure <laughs> but it was basically you know pinocchio to moses it was a pretty simple pitch you know that's uh, that i would never have thought of it in those terms but it, it does it perfectly uh, amanda you were quite young were you still in film school when you sold hand that rocks the cradle as a spec uh the hand that rocks the cradle was my thesis in film school that's what i i'd quit um i had a job i followed gary lucchese to paramount as an assistant and I quit uh, the job to go to film school at usc and it was there that i start that i really learned how to write and um, it was a great program there. Uh, and the Hand the Rocks the Cradle was my, as I said, was my thesis. And lo and behold, you sell it as a spec. It becomes a big hit movie. And so what was the next step? I know you did the, the, an episode of Fallen Angels, which was a film noir showtime show that, uh, that was kind of under the radar and underappreciated, a really beautiful experiment in film noir yeah and and it was directed by alfonso cuaron and <laughs> shot by, uh 
Chivo, you know, um, and so it, that was an amazing experience. But I have to go back and say it was really, it was because of Rick that we sold Cradle. I mean, you know, Rick was the one who took the script out and got it sold. So I just wanted to. Right. So Rick was your agent at the time, at the same time he was my agent. Oh, he was even better. It was my hu- he was my husband at the time. <laughs> oh, you, that early. I thought you had gotten married afterwards. Uh, well, the, the, just to back up, the spec script that started all this was sold on our honeymoon. Oh, my God. There's a nice way to consummate. I can think of others, but still, uh, the, it was sold on our honeymoon. And, you know, we, we weren't sure what we were coming back to. You know, whether if it sold or, you know, I, I was facing total humiliation, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so, so that happened. And then Amanda was, you were like halfway through film school at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was towards the end of it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But Cradle was a great experience. I mean, Look, Cradle- Curtis Hansen. Oh my God. Yeah. Wonderful director. A lot. And he was a super stand up guy. Yeah. And plus Disney treated me really well. Mm-hmm. Um, they never fired me. Obviously, I was a first-time writer. I stayed through all the rewrites. And towards the end of the rewrites, once Curtis came on, Rick joined me at the computer. And that was the first time we had started, we started to kind of write together because he was a producer on it anyway. And I would say, you know, this moment Curtis was just talking about and what did he say right here? And I'm working on this moment. And I was at the computer. He joined me at the computer, Rick Wood. And we started figuring out these moments together. And all of a sudden, that was, you know, that was really the beginning of us writing together. Yeah. Us realizing that we could, because before that, I just had like my own writing brain um, all alone at the computer. And once I brought Rick in, it was a whole other energy and it really worked. By the time the movie got made, I felt like he deserved shared credit with me on Cradle, and he refused to take it, um, which was very yeah, noble know. of him, but maybe yeah. a mistake. Could have been a big mistake on my part. <laughs> uh, obviously the right thing to do, but I, it was the executive, Mick, at Hollywood Pictures that suggested we write together. I mean, they were the ones that, they came to us and said, you know, I guess it just could be, become a team. And now it's like over 30 years later, and you've worked together exclusively. You don't really have credits uh, that are not team credits. So Rick, you have a really interesting and unique perspective, having been an agent, knowing what to look for uh, from screenplays, from writers. You know, there are a lot of writers, would-be writers uh, who listen to this show, who would love to hear the the perspective of what a guy who worked at William Morris was looking for in terms of what studios were seeking or buyers were seeking, how to sell a screenplay. I mean, the the elements that you as a screenwriter were exposed to made that a very interesting perspective for you to have. Yeah. Well, yeah. I well, first of all, I would back up again, and I just want you know your listeners to know that I. You know, I, yeah, I did a lot of writing, but I didn't, and I loved movies and whatever I knew about creatively was just because just sitting and watching a lot of movies, you know, and, uh, and even on TV and, and, but the truth is I, you know, when we first started working together as agent and client, you sent me a bunch of movies, you know, yeah. uh, 
and just like, here's your education. <laughs> and, and I watched them all. And it, that, so I, I, I it, it's a process. I mean, it took me a while. And, you know, and I was reading scripts on a very high level uh, when I worked for Stan because, you know, uh, all those movies getting made and stuff uh, in the early 80s. But um, so by the time it by the time I wrote, uh, I wrote it with a client of mine, too, Doug Richardson. I don't know if you remember that or not. But that, uh-huh. yeah, I do. Yeah. So Doug and I were very close and we wrote that script together. And so I did, I had to be, it was a bit of a cheat because I knew exactly what the market was looking for, which was an action comedy ish, you know, uh, war film. I mean, almost that specific. So, uh, now that's not how the idea, uh, you know, came up. I was watching Kelly's heroes one night, uh, with Amanda. I said, did you ever see this movie? And, um, uh, I said, man, there's kind of, I mean, maybe there's a remake in this or there's some version of this or whatever. So, uh, that's kind of when the idea popped. Um, now to answer your question, um, you know, in terms of now things change so quickly, uh, in terms of what the market's looking for and what, uh, would sell and what wouldn't. So I wouldn't really know, you know, like we're hearing now from our agents, you know, pitches, with packages behind it, you know, that's a really good way to sell something right now. But, you know, I don't, I, and that could be different by Monday. Yeah. So, it's such an evolutionary period, particularly in the post pandemic days, which we hope are post and the world of streaming, you know, so many movies are consumed on the home screen rather than the theater screen. And there are so many places to find them. And yet, uh, finding the good stuff is really hard to do. It is hard. You know, we find it really just word of mouth. I mean, we talk to friends like, what are you guys watching? And, you know, that kind of thing. I, I do feel like, you know, Amanda and I've spent time talking about this. So we've all really faced our own mortality as a group over the last year and a half, you know? Yeah. And so I would think that if someone had something that's just fun right now, and you know, uh, uh, that that might be a, a or 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 conversely positive, yeah. or conversely like something that's escapist and light or conversely something that affords meaning meaning is an opportunity to really right uh you know something provocative because i think so deep, yeah. because yeah. people are are you know we have this universal kind of perspective that uh that's that can be a gift you know uh, something we've lived through together so I, I expect this is going to be a very fertile time for a lot of artists. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of it. Well, it's interesting that both of you had big spec sale successes that started your writing careers. Mm-hmm. And they were very unique to yourselves. And yet you've ended up having a big participation in franchise movies. <clears throat> starting with Planet of the Apes and and uh, there's uh, uh, Mulan, of course, which was animation which or live action animation combination sort of thing and working on the Avatar sequels. So tell me about the difference between going your own way from those original screenplays and spec sales into being a part of the Hollywood hit making machine. 
tell me about the experience of dealing with the executives on that level. I mean, I've had some experience on that as well, but um, I'd love to hear because it's on such a high scale, um, what your experience is and comparing it to those days when you're fresh out of film school or just leaving William Morris. Right. Well, of course there are so, there's, there's huge constraints and the weight of carrying this, you know, hugely expensive uh, movie that is also means so much to the life of a studio. Um, but that just kind of means that you have to fight all the harder for what you believe in. But I think that the, it's so interesting because although the movies seem big, Jurassic and 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 Mulan and, and certainly Apes and Avatar, the, the, the secret to that, that we always use is um, to keep them personal. So while it while it would seem like a movie like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, for example, was a small thriller um, that you know uh, had a lot of personal things in it for me, I would say that you know. Rise of the Planet of the Apes also had a lot of personal things in it for both of us. Yeah. We really related to the characters and it was keeping that perspective on a character level, on a deeper level that we felt would really add to, you know, the, the larger math of the franchise. And it's hard to keep your eye on that ball when the movie is so big because a lot of the notes are get to the action get to the, you know, get to the fight. First act's too long. You know, first act is too long. The setup is too long, the emotional stuff. And and we, you know, we were fired on Apes, on the first Apes, three times. We brought back each time. Um, we'd work with a writer. Since we, we were the producers, we'd be fired on a Friday. <laughs> we were sitting in a room with a writer. But but yeah. the, the deal was, you know, there's there's, there's this need of the, the studio has this need to make things bigger sometimes that bigger equals better when actually smallness and um, intimacy and character detail uh, and spending the time uh, to, to invest in your characters pays off in spades in those big movies. And that was, that's uh, so we died on that hill a number of times. And, and then you uh, went on to do um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and as producers on War of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. So there's a lot of your DNA in all of these apes movies. Well, yeah, it is. I, and I hopefully going forward as well. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, it's it's hard because you, you, you know, it's it becomes a powerful machine at some point and uh, I think that, you know, like on Rise, none of the none of the directors we went to wanted to do it. Wow, uh, none of the none of the A list guys. And well, it was scary. It was you scary. know, the apes' point of view. What would that look like? How, there were questions like, how do you even tell the apes apart? How do you know which one is Caesar? <laughs> you know, in early early days, kind of thinking about that movie. But we so. Then we got to this other level of director and they and it, it became clear. It's like, well, we kind of know what movie we'll get from this person or that person. But if we go with somebody younger, unproven, we can all have a little bit heavier a hand, if you will, in the shaping of it. And uh, although I'm sure Rupert would kill me if you hear this, but <laughs> it had a lot to do with it, though. And so uh, 
So in some ways, though, it really worked. And Rupert was great. I mean, you know, I've never seen anybody work so hard in my life. And he did it. And he did a great yeah. job. Uh, so, um, but it is tough. I mean, we were fired. The reason we were fired on Rise was because they kept saying to us, you, you guys aren't listening. This movie will never be told from an ape's point of view. Hmm. And we kept saying, you're absolutely right. It's the Franco character. You're absolutely right. And we just, we held the line. And then they would fire us and the script <laughs> go sideways and they'd bring us back. They said, okay, we want you to come back, but Caesar's not, the, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Well, Caesar's but, not the protagonist. And then we do, we just, well, because when you're, when you're reading the script, <clears throat> the stuff with the humans was a lot less interesting than the stuff with the apes. Right. So Caesar's at the facility and he's dealing with Rocket and the other apes. And all of a sudden the script is alive. Like you're, you're turning the pages and you're cutting back and forth. But the, 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 because Caesar is the protagonist, that's where the juice was. And it just took them a long time to uh, reckon with that. It was, you know, to, to be fair too, to Fox and Tom Rothman and Peter Kang, um, who were the guys at Fox at the time, it was a, and Emma Watts. It was, it was a, a huge, huge swing for them. Yeah. It was a huge gamble. It was not, uh, you know, I mean, there was questions. They kept saying, well, at the bridge, who are we going to root for? Well, and they'd already tried it with uh, with Tim Burton before, yeah. and so you were starting from scratch for the third time on a on an ape series. Yeah. yeah. Well, we told them in the pitch. He said, first thing you had, you know, when we were kids, you, I'm sure you remember this, but comic books, if they got stale, they'd just start over. You know, like Superman. Suddenly, I'm, I'm like, wait a minute, didn't I've already not, you know, I know it's origins. Why am I standing there? And uh, and so we went in and said, guys, you're just going to have to pretend like the Tim Burton movie never happened. So for this moment in time, wipe it out of your memory. It didn't happen. We're starting, we're over. starting over. And they were like, okay, you know, but uh, it was a gamble. We didn't know if, you know, when we, when we saw the pitch, it, we didn't know that the technical technology would ever exist to pull it off. Well, and that's something true too, is how, what a giant leap the technology made. That's one of the reasons I had that Jurassic Park reaction was I believed these CG apes and I never thought, you know, going to see cartoon apes in a uh, Planet of the Apes movie was just going to be depressing. But the level of the computer generated imagery was so high that you could actually have them express humanity through their faces. Exactly. Yeah, and which, by the way, it's, I'm so glad you said that, is, is essential to the movie working. You yeah. know, you have to be in Caesar's heart, in his point of view, in order for the movie to play. And for the first few cuts of the film, you had brilliant Andy Serkis in a gray leotard. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he was fantastic, but then it was like, what, it, what is Caesar going to look like? And those first shots started coming in from Weta. We were, you know, we were in the editing room and there's this, the first shot that came in, Caesar is at the facility, his first morning and he's pissed, right? And he's sitting there and he's looking and it's like a shot of, a shot we'd seen a million times of Andy, of just his face. And he's looking at tight shot and he's watching, he's watching all the apes and he's thinking, and he's and there's a lot going on behind his eyes, uh, emotion, and he's grown. He's growing up before our very eyes. And the shot came in of Caesar, and there it was, 
and it, it had all of Andy's emotion. And I'm getting chills even describing it to yeah, you. Everything really exploded. Man. We just freaked out. Everybody just jumped just out of our you knew it was going to work. It's it actually work. work and even yeah. better than we thought because the, the guys at Weta, who, by the way, started out total genius, but just got better as the movies went. Yeah, they're incredible. Um, well, uh, they had practiced on Peter Jackson's King Kong. Yeah. And that was good training wheels for them. But this goes so far beyond what they'd achieved then, which in its day was a, an amazing achievement. But this brought even more humanity into creatures who are covered in fur. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say, uh, in terms of your question too, on Mulan, you know, there was a lot of, we got a lot of corporate research on our own, but uh, in terms of uh, cultural history and and so forth and actual Chinese history and military history and all that, but uh, a lot of just marketing and what played and what didn't play, you know, on a, on a on a, a level cultural level, both east and west, and uh, and that was it was very corporate. And then we uh, we were about halfway through the first draft, and uh, we one of the executives got the idea. We had an office in the animation building, and there was we had corkboard all the way around the walls, and we found some images off of uh, off the internet about well this could be cool. I mean you know Google you know, ancient Chinese farmhouse, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Except where Milan lives. But uh, we had to walk, Andy, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Alan Horn and Alan Bergman through the movie visually. This is before Nikki, I mean, it, it was just us in, our, in a room. And and it, it, they were fantastic and very supportive and everything, but there were certain, uh, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say corporate notes, but it, they, they were almost corporate notes. Well, it was really important for us to learn. It was a very valuable thing for us because we really were able up close to to understand what their needs were as a company and in terms of this this version of Mulan fitting within their brand, yet how far could we push the envelopes? I mean, it's a war movie. Yeah. And it's, and so... Um, yeah. Well, that's fascinating because it's something you don't learn in film school and you don't learn in screenwriting books and filmmaking books is the consideration of the commercial aspects, the corporate aspects, especially when you're working on something of an international scope that they hope will do as well in the East as it does in the West. So I'm, I'm fascinated to hear this because I've never had to go through that in anything I've done to this point. So I'd love to hear a little more about how specific those things got. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like it's such a constraint, but it's actually um, inspiring. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's as if like, we always think about it as like, there's a ball field and it's like, there's a little bucket, a deep, deep, deep center field, deep center field. And you got to hit the ball right into Over the everybody's head, right into the bucket. So, so for example, you know, you really want the audience to um, have rooting interest in terms of the war that Mulan is fighting in, but you don't want to see any blood. And, one so that's a challenge so how do you how do you make the audience yeah. participate in this battle how do you kind of shoot it on the page you know as a blueprint before it goes goes anywhere so that it it um it it doesn't so that a certain age group can exactly uh, i mean the stakes the stakes have to be real but a 9 year old girl's got to be really comfortable with the movie 
you know, so you lean into the character, you lean into the, we, we leaned real heavily, you know, and as, as one should, but into the father daughter relationship uh, and the family dynamic and all that. But at the end of the day, people are getting killed on the battlefield. Well, and also this four quadrant thing, yeah. which, which comes up a lot, this idea of like that, the, that, you know, the parents would enjoy the movie uh, as much as the kids and that there, there'd be levels of, um, uh, there'd be different ways that the movie could be imbibed that would be uh, deeply satisfying. And I think that you're, you're totally right with this father daughter thing that we yeah. honed, honed in on, which is, which was already kind of baked. It was in the, in the DNA movie. of yeah. it. Yeah. Um, became the key to that. I think. Well, when you became parents, did that have impact on you creatively? It seems like it would in a story like Mulan in particular. Yeah, yeah. I think. Yeah, our definitely. relationship with our two kids has definitely been uh, has definitely been a big influence on what we not not just what we've done, but just in the specifics of choices and what we do. And uh, Amanda tells the story. I mean, you know, even on a, this is sound like very superficial level but it's there's the reality to it is that you know because of the success of apes we had opportunities you know like jurassic first and then avatar and then uh but you know we got the call saying you guys want to meet with steven and talk about jurassic we we're like you know yeah i mean it'd be cool to meet him and everything and we didn't have <laughs> we just like we just didn't amusement parks and dinosaurs but we didn't have ideas for we were, yeah and we by the way we were turning in a draft of dawn the next day <laughs> right but we did yes and we didn't know so, yeah. we we didn't have an idea of where the franchise should yeah, go like how on that earth that was like a great idea yeah it's like another 10 little indians thing you know where people are just slowly getting picked off and anyway um but the thing is, is that we we found a way in. I mean, it was Stephen's idea to have the park up and running. And I thought that was the smartest thing I'd ever heard, you know, because it just wipes it just wipes the slate clean and it's wishful filming. It's wishful filming. It's just a brilliant idea. And so, uh, but it was our idea. It was our way in that because what we said to him on the second conversation was, if we can figure out a way to get emotional investment in and rooting interest behind velociraptors, then we got something really cool. Yeah. You know, really cool. And uh, and so uh, instead of turning it into a thing where, you know, uh, one, one, one dinosaur is picking people off one at a time or two even, uh, is that we, they would be in a position where humans had to go hunt this, the creation. With the help of the With raptors. the help of the raptors. And then, and so, <laughs> That's like suddenly that's a really exciting like oh my god, but the thing is is that what Amanda has said before I don't know if you mind me saying it, or you want to say it about your relationship with or do you want to no you can say it it's just that uh, still though it's like what do I what do I have in common with velociraptors like how on earth am I going to get into this but the thing is is that so you're thinking about creatures that are uh, that you care about but scare the shit out of you at the same time and then she had this insights is what well, we are raising two teenagers so, <laughs> so that was like yeah yeah maybe we can do this they're your raptors huh yeah, in a way yeah <laughs> um well in, in the case of jurassic world too you were writers for hire you created the reboot world of the planet of the apes yeah. here you were brought in to brainstorm and pitch your idea and 
how to do it. And Stephen is one of the most wonderful guys to sit in a room with because he just drips ideas. Half of them are terrible and half of them are brilliant, but he just keeps coming up with them shamelessly. And he just, it's who he is. He is this amazing machine of, of cinematic nuggets and ideas. And he was always so exciting to sit in a room with when I was working with him. We had the same experience and that from the ideas being huge, these kind of uh, like, like the park is open to, to we'd have meetings with him where it's very specific and he grabs a piece of paper and he has an idea about a cage or something, the cage yeah. and how something's going to work physically. That's, that's very specific and minute. And I, I we found him to be incredibly generous yeah. with, his thoughts and ideas, and it was, it was a. But there were some ideas. Part of the thing is that we're we're deferential, you know. But so some of these ideas were, you know, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and so, but the thing is, we take them very seriously because we're sitting, you know, with a with you know, rosebud is over my is in plexiglass box, back. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, oh my god. But uh, but. Um, well, I'll give you a specific. Specific idea that working with Stephen, when I directed my episode of Amazing Stories, Life on Death Row, there is a scene at the end where all of these inmates bring a an executed killer back to life by touching him. <clears throat> and so we move in on Patrick Swayze's face and slowly his eyes come open. And Stephen said, wouldn't it be cool if you dissolve from them being closed to them being open rather than seeing them open naturally? I thought... I don't know if that's a great idea, but it's a Steven Spielberg idea. And I'm directing for the first time for Steven Spielberg and let's try it. And, and I did it and it's interesting. There's no reason for it, but, but it's a cinematic trick. And Steven asked me to do it. And it was the only specific thing he wanted me to try changing. And I was happy to do it. And he inspires you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he will take no too. If you've got a good reason not to do it, he'll he'll uh, listen to that. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it also is instructive to to when when you're uh, when you're with somebody who's had the kind of you know uh, immense success that he has. I mean, success is of course underestimated, you know, and, uh, understating it, but um, that. This idea that you just give the ideas, that you don't edit yourself, that you just mm-hmm. that you just let the ideas come, and they're, they're not all going to be home runs. Right. And even for the giants, every idea is not a home run, but the idea, but the concept of allowing them to come and being brave enough to articulate them and throw them out there, I think um, it's instructive. I really it 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 was it was very inspirational for. And he wants your ideas too, you know, his ideas are supposed to generate yours. And I found that to be an incredibly nutritious place to work. Yeah, I agree. Early on in your career, things were much more grounded in the real world, whether it's um, the hand that rocks the cradle or fallen angels or eye for an eye. Then with the relic, suddenly we're in monster movie land. (laughs) And I've worked with Peter Hyams. I wrote an episode of Amazing Stories that he directed. That was one of my favorite ones, The Amazing Fallsworth. And he's an odd character and a really interesting guy to work with who is his own DP. But the point is, you made a change 
in the genre that suddenly most of what you're working on is set in the fantastic world where there are monsters or dinosaurs or talking apes and uh you know going into elements of fear rather than suspense or just magic so was that something that was a true change or just another facet of the jaffa and silver diamond yeah. it's interesting you know the, the relic uh was a production rewrite so they were eight days away from shooting oh my god they had no script they had a monster they had a monster <laughs> And, uh, and they were pregnant with this monster. They'd yeah. spent the Stan Winston Stan monster. Winston, yeah. And they had, you know, there were there were three different writers. There was a cut and paste draft that you could tell an executive is literally someone had cut, cut and paste. Oh, this like, was before, yeah, yeah. But anyway, and and then there'd be scenes where we don't have the scene, but we really think right here something should happen, and da da da. da. So it was a great experience, and uh, we love Peter. Hines. We love Peter. I mean, he's a, like you said, he's a character, and uh, and we drove to his office, and um, and we just I don't know, it was weird. He we talked about different things, like the the uh, Sizemore character. You know, there's a the whole thing is about superstition. So we said, well, why don't we just make him superstitious? You know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we asked questions about the monster. Well, what what's the deal with the monster? Is it, you know, is it clairvoyant? Is it? Can he? Does he have a great sense of smell? Does he have a, you know, can he see? Is he not? You know, all these questions about the monster, and Peter was like, "These are great questions. Great questions. Let's go." So we had a fax machine. This is how old timey it was. They were shooting. They started shooting. We we wrote like crazy, and then all of a sudden they were starting shooting, and obviously they were shooting out of sequence in Chicago mm -hmm. and we were Peter is from yeah yeah and we were faxing pages to the set and we would um sometimes it would they you know we fax a page and they'd shot the scene already they'd shot the scene already like we were say we'd say listen you know that joke that's on you know scene one you know one one six one oh six yeah so we, we're sending the scene today in in scene you know 53 that sets up the joke it's like we shot 53 yesterday. <laughs> so, yeah, but it was, we, it was, it was yeah, very chaotic, it was but, crazy. but it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So to, so to answer your question, it wasn't really a conscious choice. It was just an opportunity to do something fun and, you know, something's going into production and well, Sherry Lansing had called us yeah, to do a meeting at the Paramount lot. And she said, I want, I, I need you guys to do this. I want you guys to do this. And we said, well, you know what she said to us? She said, it doesn't have to be great. It just has to make sense. <laughs> We're your guys. We are the make sense people. Who <laughs> don't have to be great. <laughs> yeah, be great. Well, thanks, Siri. But it, yeah, okay. it was a much better experience than I, I mean, I was kind of worried about it at the top, but yeah. it, it turned out to be but, a good experience. But that was before, you know, those the three scripts that I told you about a moment ago uh, that we did not get made. One was a romantic comedy with an element of fantasy. The other was kind of a surfer noir based on a Don uh, Winslow Don Winslow book called California Fire Life. Oh yeah. And then the other was an adaptation of a British, very you know uh, beloved uh, British World War One novel called Birdsong. And those were my favorite. Those are my three favorite scripts. And so 
we didn't really, it wasn't like the relic switched and then go into, you know, uh, monsters and talking apes and stuff. I, I don't really know how that happened. Well, we had always, I mean, you know, I've always been a fan of grounded sci-fi, you know, like Ray Bradbury when I was growing Mm. up, one of my favorite things. And, um, and so when we started working on the tone of apes, we, I don't know, we were pulled that you can say so much with sci-fi and metaphors. You were, as you were saying earlier, you know, there's, there's, you could really comment on what it is to be human through these, through other creatures. Um, yeah. And so that was very seductive to us, uh, I think, once we did the first apes. Yeah. And, and for the three apes, you know, we were lucky enough to get those three, for those first three movies made, it was, you know, we were, we were very much into that world. It became... Yeah, yeah. Ground, grounded, I think, yeah, as long as it feels grounded, we're, we're really into it. Well, talking about high-end uh, franchise sci-fi, there is no greater auteur in that genre than James Cameron. And now getting involved in the Avatar sequels as writers working for someone who is famously, he knows what he wants and he knows what he doesn't want. And there's not much question about that. To be writers working for James Cameron who has such a strong vision of what he wants and a seemingly unlimited checkbook into what he can make. Um, tell me about that experience. It had to be different from any of the others. It was. It was hugely different. I mean, for, for one thing, there was a uh, like a six-month writer's room where we sat with him with these other writers um, well, uh, I guess we can talk about Shane. Well, Shane Salerno and Josh Friedman, uh, and 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 Jim, and uh, he also brought in a, uh, a sci-fi writer to write the novelizations of the movies we were creating. So he was in the, uh, in the room as well. A guy named Stephen Gould. Um, but he, it's interesting. I, you hear all these stories about Jim and, and being difficult and, and so forth. And I'm sure they're all true, but not so much for the right working with writers. I mean, you know, he was, you know, he's just like the rest of us, you know, he loves to hang out. He, he loves to talk movies. He loves to tell stories. He loves to laugh. He loves to make you laugh, you know? Uh, and he's, he's, I'm sorry. No, it's all right, go he's for just, it. his brain is so big. Mm-hmm. Sides of it, right? I mean, on the, on the one hand, his his imagination and his creativity is 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 just through the roof when he starts riffing on ideas um, and things that he has seen in his mind, writing them down on the on the whiteboard. It's it's amazing. It's jaw dropping. Uh, and on the other hand, his science, the t- scientific side of his brain, he taught me so much about science, and he's he's a great teacher and mentor um, and to, to sit and work on these series of stories because they're, they're incredibly expansive. Where the Navi go after um, Avatar, it's, it's, it's op- opens huge worlds on yeah. Pandora. So the first two weeks we went to Pandora boot camp. Kind of we learned camp, everything yeah. there is to know about gravity and tides and the different Navi and 
We were like Martin Sheen going down the river. And Plants <laughs> and the botany, the botany and, and the RDA, you know, like how many rivets there are. He know, Jim knows how, how the spaceships yeah. work. And, he can design those And the different shuttles. guns yeah. and helicopters and boats. There's and a the, lot of stuff well, on the, the water. Plant, the flora and fauna. And after a while, you start to, we were, there was so much material that after a while, you start to think, wait a minute, what am I in reality? Or is it? Yeah, which, which is reality? Is, which is Pandora or He's so sure of it all. Yeah. And so we just were immersed in that and then and then taking off on this story. And he had really thought this through. So there were stories he already knew uh, going forward for these movies. Um, he led us, though. He, he led us, meaning the four writers, go off. And uh, he basically said, OK, we, so we kind of had this boot camp thing. And he said, OK, go off and create three movies. You know, and just what are your ideas and whiteboard it out. And and if it is just an idea for a character or an animal or a sequence or whatever. And so we did. And then he came in and, and we were all pretty nervous when he came in that day. Because it was kind of a test. Yeah, it was. And he said, uh, again, I can't go into detail, but he said uh, this. OK, check. Check. OK, no, I've thought about that already. This is why it doesn't work. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so we kind of had that as a foundation when we started. Uh, but it was his idea. But it was it, his thing. Was, we were like midwives in a way. Yeah, we were midwives. Creative what, midwives. We, what we had written on that board was like, had we intuited where, where he was trying to lead us? Really? Yeah, well, that's interesting, too. They yeah. weren't. Anyway. So uh, a years-long process, it seems like. Well, we were six months in the writer's room, and then, you know, uh, several drafts. Um, uh, back and forth, and uh, we we got to sign the first movie, which became the first two movies. But we got to sign. They the became the first two movies because there was so there was much, so much material. material there. So we turned in basically a forty-five page first act. And by the way, we don't. We never do that. We're very controlled about. It. We never turn scripts in that are too long or whatever. We're so. But we just said, well, it was like forty-five pages or so. And we got one of those emails that you keep for the rest of your life because it was just, he was so excited about the pages and he loved this and he loved that. And I said, and, but the other said, but the problem is we're way long. And I was like, yeah, we know. Uh, so we, before we were going to move on, we we're going to go back and, and try to edit the first act. But then we got an email like an hour later saying, you know what, forget it. Just keep going. Don't worry about the length. Wow. We did. And we, we, we wrote a lot. But the, the thing is that people forget because, you know, he's such, Jim is such an amazing director. He's also an amazing writer and he would go off and write things and then he'd give us all, we could all read it. And then huge, he would go down a huge rabbit hole that um, he could just jettison yeah. and the rest. And I'm, I'm still thinking of things from different rabbit holes that have been jettisoned, but he just, it's like there's an endless supply of ideas and energy that that was and energy that couldn't that he's feeding it. off of. But he would, he would go down. He's like, Oh, wait a minute. No, someone would throw out an idea. And it's like, we can tell like, that's eh, not going to work. And you go, no, wait a minute though. I kind of like there's something there. And we'd spend two weeks on it. And we kind of knew it wasn't going to work out. You know, the four of us, but he, but he wanted, he had to go down the thing. He, he had to really turn over every rock. And, and if it didn't work, it's like, okay, it's like, let's go back to where we were. That's, a, that's one of the reasons I think it took so long. You know? Well, there's this appetite and energy and passion to get it right. And for it to be 
as good as it could possibly be and to turn over every stone on Pandora. And I think, you know, the ambition of these movies, I, as, as we've had a lot of experience writing big movies, there's nothing nearly as big as any one of these movies. Any sequence. <laughs> much less four of them. And yeah. um, they are, uh, they are full of uh, incredible um, emotion, action, you know, dynamic tension. It's just the world is the scope of it is just so big. Yeah. Imagination. Uh, yeah. Yes. Imagination. Yeah. Sheer imagination. But I would say this. We love Jim. And we really do. That's great. So glad we, we got the opportunity to do it. Oh, and, so grateful. And we just finished Jurassic and we was like, well, we, we just did this. Aren't we? I don't know. Maybe we should not do it. And, and, you know, so thank God we did because, uh, you know, the learning curve is, is steep and, but he's just, he, you know, it's it was just, just an amazing. Experience. It was great. Yeah, it was great. Isn't it great to be working for over 30 years as a screenwriter and still feel like you're learning and evolving? Nick, I, I'm so glad you said that because we feel that way. We feel like every time we go at something new, we just get, we just get better. You know, you're a little more calm about things. You know what I'm saying? And you've kind of seen things before, but, uh, uh, but you're learning we, every time. Yeah, yeah, every single time. I mean, it's. Uh, I'm glad you said that because, you know, we have we've been at this a long time, and and whatever we do next, I'm sure we'll end up learning a lot more from that too. Well, what a great, uh, great piece to go out on, guys! Thank you so much for joining us here. There's so much great information there, uh, just for listeners and for people who are interested in working in the business and the like. But I just love hearing your perceptions and. And it's inspirational to all of us. Wow. Thanks, man. Thanks so We're much, happy to Mick. be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Well, before we wrap it up, I just wanted to say that Abby Bernstein has written a biography about me that is being really well received. And it's very bizarre for me. I mean, my mother has passed away, so I don't know who's going to buy this. But it's called Master of Horror the official biography of Mick Garris. And I'm humbled and excited to see it coming out on August 13th. Abby and I and a bunch of my friends who were interviewed for the book will be at Dark Delicacies in Burbank signing the book on August 21st. So I hope to see you there. And uh, I hope if you pick it up that you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris on the Dread Podcast Network. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.